probably the most important takeaway from many years of doing this is before you get started with an online brokerage, it's important, or you know, before you give somebody your money, you should ask how you would get it back. And really thinking about what that day may come where you decide to move, what that might look like, because that's often a place where the fees start to hit. So if you're already unhappy in your relationship with a potential provider, it's going to make you even more unhappy to learn that that's really one of the places where fees stack up. Hello, welcome to a new episode of Strictly Money, your go-to source for navigating your most important financial decisions. I'm Sajal Patel. Today, we're going to delve into the world of self-directed investing. So if this is something that you are interested in, we're going to help guide you on picking the right one for you. You see, it's not just about fees, although fees are important, there's a lot more to consider. So let's jump into it. Joining me is Hamish Kamisa. He is the co-founder of Sparks Trading. Hi, Hamish. Great to have you on Strictly Money. Hey, Sajal. Good to be back. So you have been following this uh, self-directed investment space for, for quite a while through Sparks Trading. This is a company that you started to, to help people uh, pick the right one for them. Maybe start off by telling us why you started the business in the first place. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting place to start for sure. By training them, uh, you know, not in the financial or marketing world, but I come from uh, a research background. And one of the things that I saw coming out of that research world uh, that prompted me to get into this problem in, in this area in particular was just a real gap in the quality of information that people who wanted to take on investing on their own were encountering. So instead of maybe objective information, they were getting a lot of advertising and highly biased. And another thing that really um, came out of my work in healthcare and research uh, was looking at the importance of finances in older adulthood and how much that really plays a role in the quality of life that people can expect. And so the two of those things together in my own self-directed investor journey, um, you know, made me take a look at what others might be facing. And I thought, well, this is an area where I can perhaps make an impact. And so that got me down the road. And what was really fascinating is just how little information there was uh, that was unbiased or that was, you know, uh, easy to follow and digest that was out there for people who are tasked with managing their own money. And I think that's what definitely set me down the road and it brought me to where I am today. Yeah, that's, it's wonderful, Hamish, because we are vulnerable to, to marketing, obviously, you know, and, and we don't know what we don't know. And, um, you know, there's a lot of excitement, I, I feel, and amongst investors to to try to do it themselves, but obviously they have to be armed with the right information. So let me ask you, um, since you have been in this space and advising in this space for a while, what have you seen? How has it evolved in the last, let's just say, five, 10 years? Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's funny to reflect that I've got that, that breadth of knowledge, but when... Um but when you scale back along that time horizon, it's really interesting to see some of the longer term trends form. Uh, you don't necessarily see them form on a on a month by month or year by year basis. In particular, at the Canadian market uh, for self directed investors, things don't move as quickly as they do in the U.S. Uh, there have only been a handful of times over the course of uh, this whole industry where things have moved rapidly, and that was driven by pricing, for example, let's say all the way back in 2014, so almost a decade ago now, where the commission rates dropped from $30 a trade down to 10. And that really caused a, a, a set of dominoes to fold in the industry. But from that decade uh, perspective, there's really been attrition in investment and education. So a long time ago,
ago, uh, self-directed in uh, brokerages, you know, back then we called them discount brokerages and online brokerages, they would invest time and resources in educating uh, DIY investors. So they would have seminars, webinars, lots of great resources. Today, you don't really find too much of that. It's replaced maybe with blog content or the occasional newsletter, but nowhere near the kind of investment in building capacity and information and enabling investors to be able to, to make some smarter decisions around how they do investing. And that really was about the economics. So when commissions started going down, features and all of the the, the additional things that um, maybe were present before got less investment. And now we're in a world where there are, you know, commissions can be zero at certain brokerages. So you're not really paying a transactional price on executing a trade, uh, but you're also not getting a lot of other features uh, that come with paying for the service. So in a way, it's maybe you get what you pay for um, is where you get what other people pay for. <laughs> uh, and not a lot of people are paying for commissions in this space. And so that's one big trend is, is sort of like a almost like a, an attrition or an erosion of investment in the client experience. And they've substituted with maybe like digital experience or, you know, like design to try and make up for um, some of those content and um, educational pieces. Uh, another really big trend is just there's uh, for DIY investors in particular an expectation that things should cost as little as possible on the transactional front. And so the move from desktop to mobile, we saw a lot of that in COVID, for example. That was a really big push when you saw retail investors flood into the market. But the 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 takeaway is a lot of these online platforms are just not geared to be that agile. So you've got this underinvestment in the client experience from the education side, you have maybe like a minimal investment in how they're going to connect to the platform. And so there isn't this real sense of loyalty. There isn't a great excitement or energy. There isn't really like a sticky brand and relationship that uh, these financial brands um, that deliver online brokerage services or connectivity to the stock market are providing to their clients. And so it feels pretty transactional at the end of the day. That's sort of the decade view. So this is really interesting, right? Um, just that people, you know, it's not sticky and there is no loyalty because the competitive landscape, Hamish, when, when I was looking it up, I think there's probably about 14 or so core, you know, self, self-directed platforms. And, you know, I was thinking about this, they're vying for, a, I think, a, a small group of investors, right? Not everyone's investing. And, and for those who do, I would say, you know, it's a small percentage that actually wants to do it themselves. So it makes me wonder what the outlook will be. I mean, what's the incentive for any platform or those behind the platform to invest? Yeah. And that's a great question because there's this tension between these legacy systems, the amount of investment that would be required to make it pay back. Um, and certainly if they're not charging on commissions, what are they charging on in order to recoup that investment? So that's a really good business question. On the other hand, there's still brands that are trying to figure out how to make uh, the retail experience work in a commission-free world. And they're still coming to market to this point. So in January um, and even in November, so January this past year, November, uh, late last year, two brands that have been around in, in North America and, and largely in the U.S. market for more active investors, um, so Moomoo and, and Weeble, um, are launched in Can or have launched in Canada. So there is another brand in the UK, in Europe, called Free Trade, which is you know taking waitlist 
spots right now in Canada. And so there are brands who are still trying to come to market. They're smaller and they kind of follow that Robin Hood model, um, which we saw. And, you know, well, Simple Trade kind of tacked onto that as well. So there are brands that are trying to appeal to retail investors at the zero commission level and provide really great customer experience. Uh, so the the impetus for the large incumbents to to make a change is really, is there enough competition that we're worried about? And that comes back to what I was saying about the price erosion. What was really fascinating is that when National Bank Direct Brokerage, which is you know a recognizable brand in the bank tier, lowered their commission rates to zero, others other than Desjardins didn't really follow suit. And so, you know, the large bank-owned brokerages, you know, the big five, big six, they're not really forced to innovate by competition yet. And so they feel like they've got a pretty good handle with the relationships through their other products and services with the customer base, that they don't have to lower commission prices on the side of their business. And they definitely don't accelerate some of the the client trading platform experiences that these newer brands are bringing to market. So it'll be interesting over the next, you know, I would say like two to three years to see how these new brands take hold, because there's a lot of... um, there's a lot of reluctance, I think, on the part of uh, Canadian DIY investors to embrace some of these newer um, and sometimes foreign-owned brands, right? So these are two brands that I mentioned that um, you know might have uh, U.S. affiliates, but are owned back by uh, maybe potential Chinese investment houses or that are based out of um, other parts of the world. So for Canadians to trust those financial brands that are handling their money and sensitive information, I don't know if that's also going to accelerate adoption and drive any kind of competition. But the competitors are still trying to come into the Canadian market. And it's not easy. No, no. And, and, and it's not a big space, I, I would think, you know, and, and you just need uh, one big mistake to blow up. But, you know, you so kind of saw this with Robin Hood, and then the regulators crack down. You know, you hit on something though, Hamish, and I think what would be interesting, it's just my view, is how the banks are looking at self-directed platforms, right? Because now I don't know, but from my experience, what I have seen is there are people who deal with advisors and then they want to play. You know, they want that little account where they can, you know, manage their own money in just a little bit. And then you have the other side where it's someone new that's coming into this space and they don't necessarily have the funds to deal with a financial advisor, but they start off by doing something self-directed and then they start moving along in the journey. And as their situation gets more complicated, that's when the bank can say, hey, you know, you need more, maybe a, a full service type of advisory relationship. Do you have thoughts on that? Oh, yeah, that's spot on. I think um, it's fascinating because I had the chance to speak to a lot of different folks in industry while I've been covering this space. And I think they would they would characterize it in a very similar fashion. Uh, so it depends sort of what size of online brokerage you're you're talking about. But let's say at the the bank owned brokerage level, what's really fascinating is that there's a lot of turnover in the management or the oversight. So the leadership isn't really there from uh, you know beyond maybe like a two to four year cycle to drive some of this adoption and innovation and see it through to the end. There are brands maybe let's say like Questrade, which has been around since 1999 and has had the same owner essentially since that time, Interactive Brokers, uh, who you may know is um, a much larger sort of US-based brand. Um, Their founder is, you know, retired 
from the CEO chair, but is still very actively involved in representing and overseeing the business. Uh, and so when you get those you know, multi-decade kinds of leadership roles, you see the difference in how the brand evolves and how the relationship with customers is viewed. Um, from the bank-owned brokerage, it's very much a tour of duty. So you see this turnover at the top and you see sort of things change. But what has maintained itself is sort of this view of maybe a transactional relationship with the customer looking at self-directed investors. Uh, sector self-directed investing, pardon me, um, as a way into other products. So it's kind of an entry point into the network of other products and services. So it's not really viewed with the same uh, lens as the, the managed um, wealth side. It's really, you know, maybe it's the, the get the foot in the door and maybe get a chance to build a relationship with the client, have them appease the client to some degree. If, like you said, the, the wealthier clients want to have the capacity to do some of their own investing or dabble, uh, they have that core and explore kind of language, then, you know, that's what drives some of the product launches at the bank-owned side. On the smaller side, though, with some of the smaller online brokers, and they view customer relationships somewhat differently, and um, they do try and cater uh, a bit more to active traders. They will try and put in features in platform, for example, that will allow it a more intensive or, or let's say, uh, a more enriching experience for their customers. Um, but there's something that's still stuck with me and somebody said, uh, and I won't kind of name names, but really the, the, you know, they, the, the goal is trying to funnel people from the self-directed space into the, the managed products that they have in their portfolio. So to me, that's the, maybe the, the strategic lens that some of the leadership at, you know, regardless of size would try and see. So that's a complicated way of summarizing what you said, I suppose, but I can sort of point it back to specific brands that have said those kinds of things over the years, that this is really one of the reasons why they don't move as quickly or where they're really trying to um, gain value as a financial service provider is on that manager advice side. I think that's going to be really interesting. And, and just going back to the point around, you know, financial education, if they are thinking about moving in investors to say match products, and, and I'm not against that. I actually think, you know, in, in many ways, it's far because I see so many people tr trying to do it themselves, and they're not sophisticated enough to do or they're too emotional to do it themselves. But it comes back then to say, you know, they're going to have to educate people why why this is smart. Hamish, we have a lot more to uncover. I want to talk now more about, you know, how investors choose the platform for them. But we're going to take a short break and hear from our sponsors, BMO ETFs. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you looking to enhance the level of cash flow from your investments? BMO ETFs has you covered with their Covered Call ETFs. These ETFs generate cash flow from two sources, the dividend yield from the underlying securities and the premium generated from selling the call options. BMO Covered Call ETFs strike a balance between generating cash flow and participating in the growth of rising markets with their experienced portfolio management team and effective strategy with over 10 years of history. BMO ETFs is the largest covered call ETF provider in Canada, covering 13 covered call ETFs across a range of strategies across regions, countries, and sectors. Visit BMOETFs.com to learn more. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Welcome back. I'm here with Hamish Kamisa of Sparks Trading. Hamish, you touched on this a few times, um, fees, right? A lot of investors who are looking at self-directed platforms focus a lot on fees. And um, 
as you mentioned, most of the platforms have moved away from commissions and, and dropped them. I, I'm assuming it's because of, you know, the competitive landscape, but let's not make any mistake. They have to make money and they're making money somewhere. <laughs> if it's not commissions, I have to think it's from somewhere. Can you, um, can you talk about that? What are the fees? And maybe they're hidden and maybe they're not, but what are the fees that investors need to be aware of? That's a great question. And, you know, contextually, that's a place where a lot of people who are just coming into the markets or who've been in there for a long time don't really get a clear view of how things are priced. So traditionally, uh, most people focus on the commission price. And while that is important, there are a lot of other places that online brokerage providers or financial service providers uh, are very good at putting fees onto services. So probably the most important takeaway from many years of doing this is before you get started with an online brokerage, it's important, or you know, before you give somebody your money, you should ask how you would get it back. And really thinking about what that day may come where you decide to move, what that might look like, because that's often a place where the fees start to hit. So if you're already unhappy in your relationship with a potential provider, it's going to make you even more unhappy to learn that that's really one of the places where fees stack up. These are the transfer out fees, I'm assuming. Exactly. They're called transfer out fees. Now, some of the good news is that uh, if you're transferring out to a different provider, they can cover some of that. They'll refund some of it. Yeah, exactly. That's a good place to start is just asking that question. If I choose to go somewhere else, what is it going to cost me? Or if I choose to get my money back, so if I'm withdrawing from certain accounts, what is it going to cost me? So if you need to withdraw from an RSP account, for example, or they don't do this with TFSAs anymore, but at one point they did, there was, you know, there's a withdrawal fee. There may be activity fees and minimum balances is another place that people tend to fall into a trap where uh, there might be great incentives or promotions to get you into an account. They might say, oh, you only need to put in $5,000 or $10,000. But on the other hand, they might charge you, you know, $25, $50 a quarter for not maintaining a minimum balance. And so that can actually add up. So for, you know, for a good rule of thumb, anything under $25,000 and at any account would be a good place to look a little deeper and see, are there any fees for inactivity or are there any fees for minimum balance? Because if you're not at that $25,000 mark, sometimes you can get an exemption because of your age. So the good news, and this is maybe one of those trends that um, is different now in, in this day and age than it was in 2014, but there are a lot of exemptions for younger investors, you know, under 30, under 26, under, so depends how you define young, that really can offset some of those fees. But inactivity fees. So if you're not trading often, then if you're not bringing a minimum balance, then you're probably going to end up uh, experiencing some of those hidden fees. So that in addition to commission would be the the place that you would be looking at. And one other important note just on, on fees is there's some popular products that investors have drawn into, um, drawn themselves into. Uh, so this is a high interest sort of savings uh, kinds of products. And those are places that uh, some brokerages support and some don't. So a good question to ask is whether or not what you're thinking of investing in is actually available at that particular brokerage. So not all securities are uh, allowed to be traded at uh, all brokerages. And that's something that um, if you 
hear through other investors, you kind of see that's popular, you want to make some money with idle cash, you aren't always able to do that, uh, especially at the bank-owned brokerage level. So yeah, I think that's very important because not all products are offered everywhere. And I always I always say that too. Certainly the people that I teach is, is make sure you're checking those things. I thought the inactive fees was interesting too, because there are a lot of investors who buy and hold. That's what we tell them to do, right? Create a diversified portfolio and you don't really need to trade much. So that's something they need to watch out for. Exactly. Yeah. If you're underneath those balance, those minimum balance thresholds, or you're, you know, you're trying to get some additional features, let's say like level two information. So like additional depth of market price, you want to get some cool features in a trading platform. Those are neat features and they, you know, are lots of information. Those are for more active investors. So the costs for those things are usually offset if you're trading more often. But if you're not trading and you want those nice features, you're going to end up having to pay um, as well. So the the takeaway really is if you're underneath a certain balance threshold and you want to be that buy and hold investor, unless you're young. So there's sort of a gap you can see forming if unless you're young or you have that money, then uh, you're going to fall in a window where you're probably going to get hit with fees. And so that's a good place to think about who you would um, park your money with, because sometimes those re- the requirements can be as low as $1,000 to keep in your account or like even $250 to maintain in your account uh, to avoid incurring any kind of fees. But, you know, for the, for the big bank owned brokerages, that level is much higher. I'm glad you mentioned this because I, you know, right now you're, you're, we're going into an RSP season, if you call it that, you know, there's typically not really a season, but it's still labeled as RSP season. And you're starting to see promos, right? There's a lot of people who are th- starting to throw money, you know, come with us and, and uh, we'll give you cash back or whatever it is. So I think this is very timely that we're having this conversation. Hey, Mish, I want to get your views then on sort of those value add features. W- what are your thoughts on how important they are? You know, things like research or screener tools, for example. Yeah, they're really handy. So they do cut down on a lot of time. And in particular, you know, if you're thinking about most people who are at the stage where they're thinking about you know investing, you mentioned some products like ETFs, which are really popular. The screening tools for those help save a lot of time. There's a lot of those products now that weren't around in 2014 or 2015 or just starting to come to market that really let you invest passively in a way um, that won't require you to look to mutual funds to do that. So you can get exposure to that. And I think that was, you know, that was the promise of the self-directed investing world. So now that's, you know, one of the nice things about being in 2024, and in particular for RSP season is that if you want to get into those kinds of products, the tools that you'll need to navigate those kinds of products are really helpful. So screeners are really great. Um, You don't necessarily need those dynamic price charts and dynamic price information. Uh, Tool sets are nice to have. There are some brokerages just by virtue of their relationship um, with other exchanges, for example, that will pass through that level one, level two dynamic information as part of a standard offering. Um, You know, I'll point to RBC Direct Investing, for example, they offer you some depth of market uh, as part of your package. Some of those new brokerages that I mentioned that are coming to market are trying to get entice people to join them. So like the Weebles and the the Moos, they offer those level two, which is typically a very expensive feature to pay for on a monthly basis. You're looking at 40 to $60 a month sometimes for that kind of feature. And so they're able to bring that, you know, as the promos and so forth, you know, people are offering iPhones and, you know, the 
thousands, you know, they'll dangle like, oh, you can get hundreds or thousands of dollars um, for bringing over uh, your business. Those are nice to have. But I think the the interesting part for people to really pay attention to is, you know, what are the conditions that come with that? How long do you have to keep your money there? Again, I'd come back to even if they want you to deposit at a little bit amount or sorry, a little amount of money, if you have to end up um, then incurring uh, inactivity fees because you don't meet the minimum balance threshold, then you sort of erode that bonus that you would get. So it's not a bad strategy. Uh, there's a lot of conversation and excitement about the kinds of offers that are in market, especially this year. Like it's quite uh, competitive in, in dollar terms um, this year and even last year compared to many uh, years before that. So that's certainly where online brokerages are trying to push their efforts and their acquisition costs. Um, but for DIY investors, the, the, the really important thing to know to navigate through RSP season and through all of these deals, which typically will start in November. So if anybody's sort of doing some forward planning, the kickoff is in November and it generally wraps up by the RSP contribution deadline date. Um, so end of February, early March is kind of when things uh, wrap up. Uh, but the important thing to really consider is, you know, what what conditions are attached to that? And choosing a broker just on a promotion alone is not a great strategy. But if you're planning on going with a specific brokerage, you know, it helps tip the balance um, in one direction. It's nice to get something on the way in, uh, especially if coming on the way out. But if you're starting, it's nice to get something on the way in um, that you can use towards, you know, your own uh, financial future. Yeah. So you heard it here, everyone. Do your homework. <laughs> it's not just about fees and it's not just about those iPhones and, and those gifts. Hamish, hey, maybe just to sort of encapsulate it all, is there sort of one or two big mistakes that you see investors make over and over again? There's a few. So yeah, one of the ones that I think m- maybe many people don't necessarily appreciate is that there are service gaps at all online brokerages. And one of the mistakes that I find people tend to make is getting really angry and then deciding to leave because of, you know, an outage or, you know, there's some service gap, they couldn't reach customer service in time. And, you know, it's it's their right to sort of expect a certain level of service from their provider. But it's generally something that happens everywhere at some point. And picking up and moving your business from one to the next isn't necessarily going to improve that over the long term. So that's one that I've seen play out many times over and over again. Another one is just that um, it takes time to do DIY investing. And, you know, if people don't appreciate sort of how they want that portion of their, um, you know, their, their life. So you spend time worrying or, you know, doing research and all that stuff. If you don't want to invest that time, um, then you have to kind of pick up a style of investing that matches how much time you have to do that kind of work. So that's a place where someone might have, you know, good intentions to get into investing. They'll open an account, they'll put some money in, and then they don't go to it. And then those inactivity fees, or, you know, it just sort of sits there idle, and it's not necessarily making them anything like that's something that happens quite often or they get intimidated and like oh i can't do this and then things just don't go anywhere so um as i'm sure you've spoken to to many guests uh you know it's not timing the market it's time in the market in the market yes how how you are invested is is maybe more important than trying to do it absolutely perfectly and all those things so over engineering is is where i see people making the diy mistakes do you see consolidation in this space? Yes. So we saw it with uh, HSBC, um, you know, and RBC. So the HSBC Invest Direct and RBC Direct Investing, like those are, um, that's a small one, I think. Uh, and more, I we, guess, as a result of a bigger merger, but yeah. 
Yeah. Exactly. Um, in the U.S., we saw it really with the um, you know Schwab and Ameritrade. Um, that was the big, the really big case. So there isn't you know a ton of competition at the the U.S. side, but that's a really good canary for what could happen here. But there aren't you know there aren't the competitive forces here in Canada that would drive that kind of uh, movement. The value of the self-directed uh, users is not high enough, I think, to to prompt that, even though there's, let's say, between 14 and 19 online brokerages that are competing for, uh, you know, market share here, they would probably just um, retreat from the market. So we saw that uh, many years ago with Options Express and Schwab, uh, they just decided, you know, Canada wasn't for them. Um, so they might just fold up shop as opposed to um, one bigger player trying to go after another. So there's maybe one or two brands now that are getting to the point where they've got these ancillary services. So they've got, you know, in addition to the online brokerage, they'll have banking, they might have like mortgage side to their business now. You know, those are places that a bigger bank could say like, yeah, we would want to fold that brand into our portfolio or that um, would make sense consolidation yeah might come from we just can't we can't make it in this market so we'll sell ourselves or we'll we'll exit this market and someone will pick up that business so that's um what we saw happen uh you know virtual brokers picked up options express and then um ci trading picked up um virtual brokers so there's there's a little bit but it's not going to happen quickly i think what we saw in the states play out uh was much more indicative of the the seismic shift there isn't a lot of competition at the online brokerage side anymore. And the players that are in there um, are really well entrenched. And I'd kind of maybe uh, point to some uh, something like interactive brokers as a model where um, they represent one goalpost of a highly automated technology-driven organization. And they've been able to, to really sway how different players in the market have to operate. On the other hand, you've got these large players, you know, like the bank-owned brokerages, um, who just carry so much reputation and trust with their clients and with the general consumer awareness that they're able to continue on and charge a premium. So uh, it's interesting, but I think inertia um, really takes over here. And so that's maybe my biggest takeaway is that this space doesn't move very rapidly um, and investors have expectations in other places where things do move more quickly. Uh, and that consumer sentiment is what might drive change um, more than anything else in this space. Yeah. So we might not see a lot of disruptors, maybe. Hamish, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Now, I like to end the show by asking my guests three rapid fire questions. And it's, it's just a way to be a little bit more personal and, and humanize finance. So are you ready to play? Yeah. Okay. What is the best financial advice you have ever received? Probably the most sage advice is don't confuse trading with investing. Okay. That's a good one. I think a lot of people get that mixed up. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it costs them problems. Um, what is the worst financial advice you have received? Uh, the worst financial advice, that's tricky, but I think the, the, the one that I would probably point to is, um, buy and hold, uh, doesn't always work. 
Mm -hmm. right? And that's sort of when you conflate trading with investing. I think that's the expensive lesson that folks, uh, and I've done it too, you know, there's places where you've held and things end up going to zero. And if you're not paying attention to like the value side of it, because it's a value play, then uh, if you don't watch it from a trading perspective, uh, then it's going to end up uh, statistically probably working against you. Yeah, that that's a really good one, right? Because when we see something go down, it's almost like we double down on on that and and hope that it goes up and instead of cutting losses and mm-hmm. and there's a lot of sort of behavioral finance research done done on this right so that's a really good one if you could impart one message to Canadians that you think would help them with their financial wellness journey what would it be that's a great question i think the thing that um both as a self-directed investor and someone who's looked at all of this uh, financial information um, over the span of time, the the one thing that sticks out to me is that there's always a bull market somewhere. Uh, and that um, that notion that value moves between asset classes is probably the most helpful piece of advice that or like the most helpful insight that I remember reading many years ago to see um, how value flows. So it's not always in equities. It's not always in fixed It's not always in bonds. Like it moves. So um, there's a bull market somewhere. And I think if you uh, remember that, then you're not always locked into thinking, I need to be in stocks all the time, or I need to be in bonds all the time, because it's not always going to be each of those different asset classes that are working at any one given time in the cycle. And that mindset really helps uh, ensure that you ask yourself, like, do I have a good balance? Or am I looking at the picture of the world that makes sense with my portfolio? And I think that to me is something that I found really insightful because I didn't really hear it anywhere and no one ever framed it that way. Uh, and I haven't really heard anybody frame it that way since. But. No, I really like the way you you frame that because it really, it does come down to diversification. And I think people forget that and home bias, right? Because like you said, there's a bull market somewhere and it might not necessarily be in Canada right now, wherever it may be, but it, it, it could be somewhere else. And that just underscores the importance of diversification. And I also think to your point, not hanging on, not being greedy, uh, because this is something I also learned is, you know, when you see a stock rise, you don't want to sell at a profit. There's a lot of people who don't want to sell because they think, well, it's just going to keep going higher. And I keep telling them, I said, look, if you're disciplined, take that 20% return, you know, lock in your profit, you will find another bullish stock somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, if, if you're a if you're looking at it from a trader's point of view, you have to have a good set of rules and some discipline around what will get you out of a stock. And there are definitely strategies that can help you take money off the table. So you uh, scale out of a position as opposed to just waiting for the exact top or waiting for the exact bottom because that's incredibly difficult to do reliably. And then on the value side, if you're definitely in a, in a situation where you're like, this is worth a lot more in the market than I paid for, you should also have your you know your threshold set and that's sort of again that's that like you said that tendency to want to try and pick exact tops and bottoms or try and extract the maximum value be like doesn't work <laughs> yeah it's it's hard to be reliable it, with that strategy for sure all right again thank you so much hamish for coming on loved our conversation it's a pleasure uh, always happy to see you see you hamish kamisa co-founder of sparks trading Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. You can find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll see you back here next week. Until then, stay well, stay wise, and stay wealthy.